Let's pray. Holy Spirit, God, I ask that you speak this morning. Lord, I don't take it lightly that we get to go through your words, go through the things that you've said, that you've put before us, Lord. So this morning, God, open our ears. Open our hearts to receive of you. And Lord, anything I say this morning that's not from you, may it fall away. But what you want to say this morning, may it burn in our hearts, may it, may it grow in our hearts to see your kingdom come and your will be done. In your name, amen. All right, we're going to continue on into Ephesians, Ephesians 2. And this is a tricky sermon for me to preach because there's some elements in this sermon that are starting to um, rise, especially here on the Gold Coast. There's some, some themes in this that are uh, starting to take quite a bit of traction. And I know for some of you, you may go, well, I've never heard that before. And that's, that's fair enough. But the reason I want to open this up is because I think it's something that we need to have an understanding about. There's, there's things that Paul touches on in the second part of his letter to the Ephesians that is imperative for us to understand because it's a direction which a lot of churches are moving. It's a direction in which a lot of people are moving. And I think without clarity, then we, we can't actually see what it was that Jesus came to put before us. The scriptures, the Bible is about Jesus from the very beginning to the very end. It's about him and his kingdom. Right When Jesus comes and he walks on the road to Emmaus, he says to the two men, I will take you and show you myself in the Old Testament. I will show you me throughout the whole thing. Our eyes from beginning to end are to be set on him and to understand who he is in a greater context, in our context and, and, and in a context that's to come. So Paul, in Ephesians 2, chapter 11, I'm going to read the whole, um, I'm going to read half of it and then I'm going to break it down and hopefully I can be done before uh, quarter past 11. Ephesians 2, chapter 11. Uh, sorry, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. There's a lot of stuff that he says. Paul makes a lot of big um, big uh, points in this little bit of, of Scripture. That's why for me, trying to read as much Scripture as you can, while helpful to get you into a place where you're regularly reading the Scriptures, can be challenging in the massive things that Paul's saying in one sentence. So, for me, I don't like to sit down and read as much as I can. I like to sit down and read a snippet and go, what in the world does, what is he trying, what is he saying? You know, it's like you've ever heard like a, a lecture or, a, or a, a, a fancy person speak about something. They use all these massive words and you think, why did you do that? I'm just confused now. And then really you were just saying, let's go outside. But you used all these amazing words to make it sound fancy. 
That's kind of like what Paul is doing, except for the fact that he's writing in a context that we're not in. Plus, it's been translated and changed and moved the whole way along. So we have to actually break down what he's saying. But there's been, in, in the current time and, and what seems to be being developed, there's two primary ideas of thought that have crept into the church that I think are terrible, and it's what Paul is addressing in this place. The first one is a theology called replacement theology. And replacement theology, in simple terms, is the fact that when Jesus died on the cross and he rose again, there was a new church created that replaced the old system. Okay, that the, the old Jewish way of doing things became no more once Jesus was raised back from, from the dead. And uh, uh, this happened a lot in the Western world that we took this idea and we created our church and then it was almost like we said to the people, we've got to come back into Israel and teach you about this God that, that we know about that you don't know about. Well, they've been learning about him for generations, right? So there's some things that need to change. But what happened in, in um, sort of Martin Luther's time, or certainly around the, the, the Greco-Roman time, was that they took a teaching of Jesus which was made in love and founded in a Jewish history and they replaced it with their history. They replaced it with a Roman understanding, which I'm going to get to in a minute. But what we have to remember is that the Jewish people and, and, and the Jewish geography is incredibly important to God and to Christ. Right? We can't replace it with one and take the other out and then, and then put in what suits us the best because we like hot dogs and hamburgers and it sounds better to us. We can't do that. We have to be careful not to do that. And unfortunately, when I stood in the, when I first heard this, I was like, "There's no way that's still taught today." And then I went and listened to some big teachers, well-known teachers, teach on this, and that's exactly what they were teaching. It may not have been as clear-cut as what they were saying, but underneath there was this tone of of a replacement. We're better than they are. But then there's this other side of that as well, which I couldn't find a a, a term, so I coined my own term for it, but. I called it Jewish partition theology, where there's almost this still divide between the Jewish nation and the Gentile nations, where it's almost like this, hey, we're the chosen Jewish people, and you Gentiles are the ugly adopted brother who can come in, but you're not really in. You're kind of there, you're kind of not. And there's this, this teaching that's being pushed. There's this, this leaning towards this thing where it's like, well, they are the original chosen, right? Paul says, first to the Jews. Therefore, they are the bigger, older, stronger brother. And we come in as this, please, sir, may I have some more? And I think both of these teachings, both of these theologies lead away from the power of what Jesus did on the cross. They actually nullify the power of the cross. Right? And the Bible says, not my terms, the Bible says that these teachings are a doctrine of demons. That anything that leads us away from Christ, anything that leads us away from the covenant blood of Christ is not what was planned to be brought forward. Is not how we should be living and we should be operating. So where are we to stand? Somewhere in the middle is a truth in this. An understanding that says we are, almost like Paul says, one new man in him. But Paul starts this section of the letter, very interesting, Ephesians 2.11. He says this, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Paul tackles right off the bat the fact that there was a circumcised people and an uncircumcised people. We are all adults here. I don't have to go into what circumcision is, do I? No, thank you, sir. 
take Mel's nod of approval there that I don't have to. One group was uncircumcised, one group was circumcised. There was this divide that was already being put in, that once Jesus had died and been risen from the dead and said, all can come in through me, there was this wrestle between, yeah, but they don't have the things that we have. They didn't have to go through the rituals and the things that we had to go through. But Paul, interestingly, says that it was, it was made in the flesh by hands. That was an old term that rabbis used to use to represent something that was pagan. So think about it. Every time they would worship a pagan god, what would they do? They would build, a, they would build an idol. Right? With their human hands, they would build something to worship. Why? Because the demonic realm or the realm in which they were worshipping into, the pagan god system, didn't have a visual representation in the world that they could worship. But God, but God in his absolute brilliance, put a representation of him to worship everywhere. So as Christians, you'll notice when Jesus comes, he doesn't give them anything to actually hold. He doesn't give them anything to put in their homes. He just says, worship me and look to the Father. And they would have gone, where? Where's the Father? Right? But they understood in their, in their old way of thinking that it was a spiritual representation of the Father. But every religion other than that places in play something that can be beheld, something that's made with hands that can be put before them. It wasn't until, it wasn't until the, 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 the Romans brought about Roman Catholicism where they started to implement things that we could hold in our hands because as a people, we want to actually see what it is we're worshipping, but God says, in your faith, you worship me and things will be made manifest. But in your faith, you worship me. So what started to happen was we started seeing these, these fancy gold crosses. We started seeing chains with, with fancy things on them, certain people that we could look at and hold and pray to, paintings and all sorts of things that have been carried out through, through generation upon generation because we're trying to put our hands to something that we're worshipping. But God's saying, if you can worship me through faith without seeing me, you'll be much better off. So we don't see anything come into play where we can put before us our hands. But Paul says, there's something you've done that's made you worthy before me. But as we spoke about last week, as Paul explained, Jesus made it the only way back into the Father, the only way into him was through Christ because he gets the glory. So now if some sort of right doing, circumcision or ticking the boxes or becoming a perfect person, puts me back into the righteousness of God, I did that. I achieve that. So what's happening in this in, in, in Ephesus is that the, the, the Pharisees are coming and they're saying, yeah, but we're the circumcised ones. They're not. And Paul flips it and says, you did that with your own hands. You're worshipping something that you made with your hands, not that God made. He's saying that's not what makes them whole in Christ. What makes them whole in Christ is Jesus, is the blood of the cross. So we have all these things. And in Romans 1, it says this, For his invisible attributes, God's, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made by him. There is enough out there to give, give glory and praise of who God is. The fact that you can breathe in and breathe out and there's air in your lungs is enough to say, God, you are an incredible creator and I will worship you. 
We don't need something to put on the pedestal. We don't need something to put before us to say, well, God, I need to look at something so that I can worship it. So what about the cross? What about the cross that we tattoo on ourselves, that we hang around our necks? Did we create something to worship? In some cases, yes, I think we did. But in other cases, you have to take the image of the cross as a reminder of the covenant that Christ cut with God, that he allows us into. What Jesus was doing, and I've preached about this before, was that Jesus was fulfilling an ancient blood covenant, a Jewish blood covenant. And the final thing in an, in an ancient Jewish blood covenant was to take a tree with the person that I'm cutting covenant with and plant it so that every time we walk into that region, I can see the tree and go, yeah, I cut covenant with Sven. I remember that. He's my brother. I fight for him. What Jesus did on, the, on, on Calvary with the cross, what Jesus did on the top of Golgotha was he planted a tree to say, every time you see this, remember who you are. Remember who fights on your side. Remember what took place here. But what happens as human beings, and especially with pagan Ben, we take that and we want to worship the cross. But we've come through the cross. It's a reminder of who Jesus is. Anytime the cross becomes bigger than Jesus, it's become a pagan idol. We must remove it. That's wild to say, but that's exactly what's happened. I have good friends, good friends, who are atheists but have crosses tattooed on them. And when I asked him why, he said, it just makes me feel safe. Fair enough. I don't know what it does for you, but fair enough. And I've got to preach to that guy. I've got to explain, hey, can I tell you what that means for me? I get excited when I see it tattooed on your skin, but can I tell you what it means for me? It means I'm a son brought back into the Father. It means that I'm a chosen one. It means that he died for me to be whole. That's what that cross means. But what happens is, is we want to take it and make it something. Paul doesn't beat around the bush. Ephesians 2.12, he says, Remember that you were at time, at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. As Gentiles, all of us here, unless there's any, any Jewish people in the room, no? All of us, every single one of us, had no hope in the world. We were not chosen. We were not called in. We were headed for destruction thanks to our kind, Adam and Eve, that took of the fruit. There was only one people chosen at that time, and that was the Jewish nation. God chose one people for one time, and he gave them the opportunity to walk his fullness out. At that time, we had no hope. Paul doesn't beat around the bush. Why is that important? Because at times, we get a little complacent with who we are as Christians. We get a little bit, what was me? We get a little bit, God, you're not giving me enough, or I don't have this enough, or I need more of that, or where's my calling, or where's my husband, or where's my wife? Happy Valentine's Day for those of you who care. We get a little bit indignant. We get a little bit, God, you've not given me what you promised. No, he promised you nothing to begin with. He promised us nothing to begin with. And yet, because of the goodness of God, because of the goodness of God, he said, I have a covenant promise with the people Israel, but because I love every single one of you, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to open the floodgates and I'm going to allow you to come in. 
See why this is important and why Paul harps on it and says, remember that you were, you were gone. You were not a part of this. It's because we get to stand in as orphans made sons, as orphans made daughters and say, I remember what Jesus did for me. I can stomp around and I can cry and whinge and, and complain that I haven't got this or I haven't got that or my life hasn't been easy, but I could be somewhere entirely different. I could be not a part of his covenant promise. I could be out in the darkness, out in the wilderness. Without the promise of him, Jesus, you are enough for what you gave me. I had no covenant promise and you brought me into a covenant promise. Paul is 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 called to the Gentiles and he doesn't beat around the bush to say you were never meant to be here, yet his love brought you in. Because then he continues on in 13 and he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you were once far off, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I said a few weeks ago, if you don't know what the blood of Christ does for your life, please go and, and, and Google if you need. Google blood of Christ mentioned in Bible. Read every verse that it shows you. Go to your knees in prayer. God, show me what your blood means. Show me what your blood means. Why? Because Paul explains just how important the blood of Christ brought us in to a covenant we were never supposed to be in. So do I walk in like, yes, I, I deserve this. No, I come in, Father, thank you. Thank you. My generation, specifically, even maybe the one before me, has an entitlement. We do. We have an entitlement. I, I should get this. The government should pay me when I don't have a job. I should get this and I should get that. I remember my dad saying to me one time, why? Why, why should you get that? And I thought, I don't know. I'm a good guy. I'm, I'm nice to people. I say thank you. See, we, we come in with this entitlement, but we can't ever forget, no, God suffered for us to be in that position. He died for us to be in that position. He gave everything he had to be in that position. He walked a journey that, that I would never even want to begin to walk to get us into that position. The moment our hearts turn from thankfulness to some sort of entitled bitterness, we've missed what God was doing for us. We come in thankful. But we don't come in as second rate. We come in as sons and daughters. We come in adopted into the family. We come in to say, thank you. Man, I'm so glad that I get to be here. You guys have been here much longer than we have. But we come in, not as beggars, please, can I have some more? The son, the prodigal son who came home, he was given everything that was taken from him. Sorry, let me rephrase that. He was given everything he gave away. He was given everything he foolish, to foolishly tossed to the wind. The father restored him to full sonship. And you know what the older brother did? Why does he get that? You didn't give me the fat and cut. Why do they get to freely come back in? You know, I, I feel for the older brother. Because it does, it makes sense why he's upset. Your love, Father, is so good that you'll restore them to fullness. I didn't leave. But the love of the Father, the kingdom is upside down. God loves us with a heart that we can't comprehend. 
So when he joined us, when he brought us back into the family, when he, when he allowed us to become one, he said this, my sons and my daughters are home and I will restore them. You know why heaven rejoices every time somebody gets saved? Because my son is home. A daughter is home. Every time a son or a daughter gets saved back into the kingdom of God, it's like the father running out to meet them. You have no idea what you've just come back into. A promise that was never given to you, but I wanted you to be here, so I made a sacrifice for you to come. Paul continues on in Ephesians 2, 14 to 16. He says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. I love that verse because I'm going to explain what the wall of hostility is in a minute. But something jumped out at me while I was writing this this week that I'd not really seen before. And it's one of those instances, like I said before, where Paul uses a lot of fancy words and you pretend to know what they mean because it makes you feel good, but really you don't. You just skim over them. And I realized I've skimmed over this sentence so many times thinking, oh, that sounds fancy, but what does it actually mean? He says, abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. I checked. Ordinances is the most non-fancy word they could use. And I was like, what in the world does that even mean? But that word ordinances is literally the Greek word dogma. And it's the same word dogma that we use today in English. And it means the same thing. A dogma is a principle or set of principles laid down by an authority or in, uh, sorry, laid down by an authority as indisputably true. Okay, so it's a, it's a list of rules that you make that is absolutely true and you don't ask why it's true because that guy's told you it's true. It's like when you go to, the, that, to you, your job and you do a particular task that you've never ever questioned, you just, he told you to do it, so you do it that way. That's dogma, right? We're not shifting from it, we're not reevaluating it, we're not reassessing it, do as you're told. Right? So what Paul is saying in this is he's saying that when Jesus came and he died on the cross and his blood washed and he brought us all together as one new man in him, he abolished the law of commandments that were expressed in dogma. So I've also taught before about Samika, right? That, that there, were, there were Pharisees that were given, Jesus carried it, a thing called Samika, which was an authority to teach the law and they could describe how that was interpreted. So certain things that were read, they carried an authority to outline the rule. The easiest one to remember is when, is when uh, the lady comes with adultery and they, they're going to stone her. And Jesus says, those of you who are without sin, cast the first stone. Jesus was in his authority, Samika, in his authority, he was interpreting a, a law that they couldn't follow through on. Does that make sense? So what Paul's saying is what Jesus did is he completely rebuilt the way that we see and understand the legal system of God. We now look at the legal system through his eyes, through his lens, through the cross of Calvary. So what Paul is saying is he's saying all these rules and regulations that you guys put in place, the kingdom of God has now superseded all those rules. 
So do we get to go and willy-nilly and do as we, as we please? As I, as I said last week, no, you don't. There's an understanding of what grace really is, and he's given you a pattern of life to live. However, somebody doesn't get to control you and say, this is the way you must do it, because that was broken down at the rules, uh, sorry, at the, at the hill of Calvary. So if, if one person's circumcised and the other is not circumcised, which one of them is more holy? Paul is saying, and it's amazing how many people have asked me that, non-Christians, should I get my son circumcised? I want to make sure they're going to go to heaven. And you think, ah, oh, such a longer conversation than yes or no. Yeah. But the reality is, is that this still plays in our understanding, right? It doesn't matter either way. Why? Because Jesus set up a new justice system which said it matters about your heart the way that you actually live your life for me. So he said it's not about rules anymore. Are rules helpful? Yes. Can rules be put in place? Yes. But it's not about those that make you holy. It's about your heart being lived untoward me. Does that make sense? So Paul is saying that there is now a division, a breakdown between the way we're, we're removing the law that you guys put in place to bring about a bigger law, which is that of Jesus, who we operate through him. Right? He said, the law is no longer finished. It's about your heart. If you look on that person, you've committed adultery. Right? He changed it. He set up a system almost that was absolutely harder for us to follow than what they had already had in place. But he says that the, 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 the wall of hostility had the, broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. There was a wall in the temple court, and the wall was called a serach in, in, in Hebrew. And it was a wall that divided the temple into two sections. It had 13 openings. That has a reason, but we don't need to go into it. It had 13 openings, and it... Sorry, I just something just jumped into my brain. 13, had 13 openings. It, it was a dividing wall that kept the, the Gentiles outside of the first inner court into, the, into, into, into the, the temple, right? Because a Gentile was not, because they were unclean, they hadn't followed the cleansing rituals the Jews had followed. It kept them in a section that they weren't allowed to go into. So they're in a section that they're not allowed in. Why? Because the law, Because of the law, they were unclean. This is what in Acts 21, they, they go to stone Paul for. It says, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This man is teaching, this man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled the holy place. As Gentiles, according to the Jewish laws, we were unclean and we were not allowed in to worship God. And that was separated by a, a physical, that's why it says in the flesh, a physical war. That when Jesus died on the cross, when his blood bled for the people, he allowed Gentiles, us, the unclean, to go past that wall and enter into him. Something we were never given, Christ, on the cross gives us and allows us into that place. We were not a called people, but he said, through my blood, I'm going to make every single one of you a called people. The wall of hostility has been broken, and, and Paul is saying, now Jew and Gentile, 
female and male, we enter into a place as brothers and sisters. We enter in as to a place as brothers and sisters, the same in him. There is no difference whether you're a whether you're an Asian Christian or a Jewish Christian. Christian meaning follower of Christ. Whether you're from Africa, from Indonesia. The reason that there's no place for racism in the house of God or for sexism in the house of God is because in your spirit you have been made one with him. That when you get joined to Christ, God sees you like he sees the Son. That's why there is no separation that can take place. There is no black people sit on one side and white people sit on the other. Or we don't allow that food or this thing. Why? Because we're all made one in him. We've all been brought into the family, into his brotherhood. Paul continues on in Ephesians 2.17. He says, And he came and preached peace to you, the Jews, who were far off, and peace to those who were near, the, the, sorry, the Gentiles who were far off and the Jews who were near. He preached peace to both of you, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Everything is built off Jesus, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows in a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are refugees made sons. Refugees made sons or daughters. Sorry, all my notes say sons and daughters. Think about this. Think about this. An Indian husband and wife come under persecution in the town or city they're in. They hop a plane. They fly to Australia. They get a house. They settle in Australia, they become Australian citizens. By all legal purposes, they are citizens of Australia. Now, does that mean that every time they have dinner at home with their family, they're having a sausage on bread? No, right? You go into an Indian's home who is an Australian citizen, and I bet 10 to 1, they eat the food passed down by their generations, right? They keep the culture by which they came from. That doesn't change the fact that they're still Australian citizens, right? They have the legal documentation. I'm an Australian citizen. But I carry who I am because that was the, the, the life of my forefathers. So I shouldn't have to come in and all of a sudden be a full-blown looking, looking Australian because I've, I've, I've come from another country. But what happens in our Western culture, especially in the church, is we get somebody saved and we say, okay, this is how you have to look now. This is what you have to do. Get some ripped jeans, some fancy glasses, and you need to talk a certain way. Sorry, Sean, I knew I, knew I shouldn't have said it. Hey? I just couldn't, I saw you and I thought, oh, I'm going to have a little cracky. But we want it to look a certain way, right? We want every church to look a certain way. That was the biggest struggle for Jess and I when we started leading. Because people would come in and a lot of people have come and gone. They said, well, you don't have this. Okay, but I don't know how to do that. 
I know how to do this. That's why it looks this way. Because this is what God's shown me. If you want to come and do that and help me, great. But I, I, I don't know how to do that. It's like walking into an Indian person's house and saying, why, is the, why does it smell like curry in here? Because that's who I am. That's my house. Right? But God has given us a way to live. He's given us an understanding of how to walk out who we are. But there's things in our life that don't change because all of a sudden we look different. Not, not everything changes. God designed you to look a certain way. Does that mean I can go out sin? No, because he, he didn't design you like that. That's not who you are. But there's likes and dislikes that you're going to carry. There's things that you do that your family does that, that are going to carry on. When my family gets together, we sit around and talk for hours, rag jokes on each other, play a, like bocce, a funny game that we don't have to go very far to do anything. That's just what we do. We don't go and ski or, or go. and we, we, That's just what, who we are. But God is saying, but now I've made you into one person. I've made you sons and daughters of mine. I've made you a people according to one flesh. Paul says to another letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 16, 19, he says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. No one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He's being recreated, recreated to look like Christ. He's a new creation, reconciled. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. When a Christian, when a non-believer becomes a Christian, guess what happens? They become a new creation. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. So what takes place is Tim and I, it doesn't matter if we don't like the same stuff because in the core of our being, in our spirit man, we're brothers. In our spirit man, we're the same. In our spirit man, we're both hidden in Christ. Now, our flesh looks different, right? Tim likes chick flicks. I like action films. But that stuff doesn't matter because it's unity, like I spoke last week, in the spirit. It's unity to take us the same place that God is leading us. So we cannot refer to each other no longer as Jew or Gentile. We cannot refer to each other no longer as black or white, as male or female. Why? Because in the spirit, we are made in the same image. Does that make sense? So now we don't call a girl a girl and a, and, a, and a male a male. Great point. No, you still do. Why? Because our flesh isn't matched up to what our spirit is. So when a when a when a um, an Orthodox Jew gets saved by Christ and becomes a Messianic Jew, does he have to stop? using the things that he learnt from his forefathers. Stop doing the rituals. Stop doing the feasts. No. Why? Because that's where God placed him and that's who God allowed him to be. But in the same context, do I have to start doing those things? No. 
Why? Because I live my life out through Christ where no one can, can um, tell me that I'm unholy except for in my spirit. Does that make sense? Is anyone lost? No. Okay. This is incredibly important. Why? Because, because God has allowed a people group to join together and to become one new man. But we can't achieve what God wants us to if there is still hostility among that new man. And that counts across the board from this, this house to, to the house up the road to the house in another city, from leader to leader, from person to person, from theology and doctrine to theology and doctrine. We need to find unity together where we come together as one body, strong in Christ, to outwork what it is he's asking us to outwork. I'm not going to read it because I don't have time, but I just want to, I want to make a point. When Moses goes to the fire, when Moses goes to the burning bush, what is it that the angel of the Lord says to him? Tim sung about it this morning. Take off your sandals, you're on a holy ground. Right? There was an understanding then in the ancient thought that when an angel Lord would come, when, when, which without going into it, I think is Jesus, that it was Jesus in the burning bush. But when, when God came, the ground before them became holy. Right? There was this understanding that Israel at that time, which I still think it is just for the record, was created as, whole, as a holy geography. Why? In 2 Kings, when, when um, what's his name? Um, Naaman goes, he's, he's got leprosy. He's the, the Syrian um, chief of the army, commander of the army, and he's got leprosy. And he goes to this land, Israel, because he's heard of a healing that can take place. He's heard of this God, Yahweh, who can, can take away his leprosy. So he goes to meet with the prophet. He goes to meet with, with Elisha. And when he gets there, Elisha won't pray for him. He says, go and dunk yourself in the water. You'll get healed. Gets angry, but then he says, okay, I'll go. He dunks himself in the land. He gets healed, right? But Naaman does something very interesting after he gets healed. He's incredibly challenged by the God of Israel that he takes up two bags of sand. He fills two bags on his knapsack and puts them on his horse of sand. And he thanks them beyond and he takes two bags of sand with him. Now, we don't know what he does with the sand. It never comes into play. But, but I take it as if he knew this ground that your God is on is holy. That even if I spread that sand out at my home, I can kneel down on it and I can pray from the holy place. He understood that there was a geography that God had made holy, as we see with Moses. But the most incredible one we see is with Jesus. Jesus should have been killed in the city in the city courts. Why? Because both the Romans and the Pharisees wanted to make an example of this guy who was making a, a ruckus in the city courts to say, follow me and, and, and follow what I'm doing. They wanted to make an example of him. Yet they walk him outside of the city courts. He walks up a mountain and they crucify him on top of the mountain. I believe with all that I am that that's the genius of God. He took him outside of the holy place, outside of the holy city, because he was protected and he was, he was looked after inside the city. But Jesus says, I will, be, I will be made a sacrifice of outside where there is no protection. We hear Jesus speak that he was surrounded by the bulls of Bashan. He was surrounded by demonic spirits in an unclean, unprotected place. He died on the, on the mountain that, that allowed him to be who God had called him to be. But the interesting thing is that we have to understand who we are now. 
that when Jesus died on that, on that cross, again, his blood washes us clean. We now become the temple of the Holy Spirit, the, the, the place in which God dwells. So we don't need to go into a church building to be on holy ground. Why? Because we are holy ground. You and I are holy ground. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells inside of you? Everywhere we go, as followers of Christ, we bring with us the spirit of God. Holy ground. That is an incredibly amazing thing that we have to understand. That as we begin to act in him, as we begin to move in him, in the spirit with who he is, we have been made alongside Israel, in with brothers, heirs to what God has given us. We get to act as the holy ground of God here on earth. Everywhere we go. That's what my Bible says. That I am a dwelling place of God. So I don't want to go and build the biggest temple in, in, in the Western Hemisphere. I don't want to go and build these amazing big temple courts. Why? Because God made us the temple. Why? Because we're made in the image of him. So his temple now looks like him. So there's, there's not just where we built 50 temples around the city. No, there's hundreds of, of, upon thousands upon millions of temples operating out there in the world when we be who we're supposed to be. We don't have to plant 55,000 churches. We don't have to build 55,000 temples. Why? Because we're all here. Now, should we plant churches? Yes. Should we go into areas that don't have those things, plant, build, equip, spread out? Yes, absolutely. But remembering that every single one of us, regardless of whether you preach from this barrel or sing on the worship team, is a temple to the mighty Holy Spirit of God. That we operate from that place. 1 Peter 2.9 says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous, marvelous light. 1 Corinthians says, uh, 3.9 says, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. We are the place in which he is spread out from. So I just want to end with this. I want to end with this because I, I hope I've made this clear. But a guy named Don Finto who wrote a book called Your People Shall Be My People. And I, I read the book and there's some things in it I really liked, some things in it I didn't. But I really liked, he said this, and I think it makes so much sense. He said, the New Testament can only fully be understood through the lens of, of Jewish history and the prophets. We have to understand that when Jesus died and came back to life, he came back as a Jewish man. He came back following some of those rites and rituals that he would have followed as a kid. When Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he didn't instantly change and become a Christian like we would understand or see. He stayed who he was. He would have followed the same. He would have gone to temple. He would have done all those things. Jesus chose a particular time in history to come and reveal himself. I often question God, why not the Egyptians? Why not the Romans? Why not the powerful conquering people the Romans were? 
what about the Asians? I mean, the Asians had, China was locked down and they had their own things going on. But Jesus chose a particular people group to come because they had a culture and an expression that showed who he was. They were called from the very beginning because they carried more of who he was than any other culture. So should we learn that? Yes. Should we know that? Yes. Should we understand what what their calendar looks like and what the times and the seasons look like? Absolutely. Should we understand the language, the Hebraic, the Greek? Absolutely we should. And should we honor them as brothers and sisters? Yes. Why? Because we're all one in him, one new man that will usher in the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? I know this might be a bit scary, but does anyone have a question about this? Okay, no one got lost. The reason this is important, I'm, I'm, I'm closing now with two minutes to spare, just for the record. Um, the reason this is important is because, and, and I, I, hopefully I will go through Romans, because I think Romans 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and the beginning of 12 are incredibly important for who we are as a people, one in God. Paul is very clear about how it looks and how it's to operate. But what I don't want to see in a people, what I, what I get upset with is when us as Christians dismiss the Jewish heritage or us as Christians dismiss the nation of Israel. Because there is clearly something God is doing in that nation. He's moving and he's shifting. And when he returns, I do believe he will use that place. Why? Because everything we see in Scripture reveals that. Right? Everything that's mapped out through John, throughout all of that, reveals that there is, a, there is a holy geography over the Middle East. That's why it's been in war for centuries. We can't dismiss that stuff. We have to understand it more. We have to understand why was, was it a Jewish culture? What does it mean for us? What does it look like? How do we begin to unpack that? What does Paul mean when he says that thing? Like, What, what does binding and loosing really mean? Not what's our, our Western understanding of it, but what did they understand binding and loosing to mean? Because that's the language, that's the culture, that's the way he wrote. This stuff excites me because when you find something and you go, oh my goodness, they would have seen it this way, it changes the way you see the scriptures. Does that make sense? Fantastic. Why don't you stand and we'll pray. Father, God, I thank you so much that you would send your son as a sacrifice for us to be brought back into your family. Lord, I am so grateful that you have allowed us who were once so far off, who were once aliens, to come in and be called sons, heirs, to be called royal priests. Lord, that even even when we didn't deserve it, Lord, you wanted to pour it out on us. God, I thank you so much that you are who you said you are, that you fulfilled the promise in which you had given us. Lord, that every day as we learn more about you, as we go deeper and deeper and deeper into you, that that your love for us is revealed as we begin to love you more and more. Help us to understand your ways. Help us to understand your language. Help us to understand the culture in which you are building into us, God. We love you. We honor you. And in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.